Hi, this is Craig Tim, and I'd like to welcome you to hear what God has to say about living the Christian life. His promises are here from yesterday, are the same today, and they will be the same tomorrow. And today is another episode to hear from what he has to say. We're going to continue. This is part three. If you haven't listened to the other two, you probably should listen to them first, if at all possible. This is part three that we've been talking about restlessness versus unrest. In the first part, the Lord spoke to me to stop in the middle. It was so deep and there was so much there to absorb. One of the few times he's done that, actually, since I've been doing this, that he just wanted the listeners to take a moment and absorb what it was. And the last time we got together, we continued in the conversation about what the differences are here. And if you remember, though, the two words sound like they actually mean about the same thing. One who lacks rest. Restlessness versus unrest. Lacking rest. Sure. But we found out that the two words do not have the same meaning at all. Restlessness is defined as a state of being unable to rest, either physically or mentally. Restlessness can be caused by physical conditions, such as, oh gosh, anything, anxiety, uh, exhilaration, uh, emotional distress, anything like that. Then, there was an issue of having unrest. Or another way of saying it, was a civil disorder. And this type of unrest can be caused by a, a single cause or a combination of causes. Grievances, political grievances, economic grievances, social grievances, anything of that can cause the civil unrest. And these events can be either from organized or they can just be a spontaneous reaction to some type of event that triggers them. The greater the impact of this triggering event, whatever that might happen, is the greater the probability that unrest will have a substantial impact. A substantial impact causing damage, even death. Sometimes a peaceful gathering can turn into a riot-like atmosphere when someone or something triggers some strong emotions among, among those that are there. Often we find out that those who are involved in the rioting, they believe that they're justifying what they're doing just because they're passionately trying to express their opinion. This is similar to what we all do when we sin, trying to justify our deceitful actions. There is one more type of unrest, though, that has not been spoken yet, and I want to share with you that today in this is how we're going to continue our message. We're going to find out what the Bible says about rioting also. Let's look at what having holy unrest is all about. Holy unrest. This, this can be a feeling that just gnaws at the unsettledness, that eludes your spiritual peace. Yet it might be absent of sin or any type of personal expectations. It's just, uh, you know, you just, uh, you just have unrest with it. The, the holy unrest that you feel, 
It can only be resolved by the gracious movement of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you can get rid of that. Now, the Bible mentions about a few riots from those having unrest. And sadly, none of them were favorable. They were all ugly. Paul was the victim of rioters on several occasions in Acts 17.5. But other Jews were jealous. They were actually... Side note, they were jealous of Paul and Silas, and this particular event was taking place in Thessalonica. But the other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad dudes from the marketplace, and they formed a mob. They started a riot in the city because of their jealousy of Paul and Silas. In Acts 19.32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. The fact that most of the Ephesian rioters in this scripture part, they didn't even know why they were there. And this says volumes about the mob mentality that we find today, even today in America and around the world. In each case here, jealousy, deception, they were at the heart of the riots. It was the hate-filled agenda of the instigators that fired up the townspeople. Many of them, they weren't even sure what the issues were about. But that was the thing to do. Be part of the crowd. Let's riot. Let's cause havoc amongst our community. Now, the most infamous riot in the Bible occurred during the trial of Jesus before Pilate. The governor had found no fault on him. However... The chief scribes and the other religious leaders, they were all determined to kill Jesus. So they stirred up the crowd. That's like stirring a pot of stew, maybe. Yet you had to continue to stir it in order to heat all the ingredients equally. That's what these guys did. And here then, we have a clue as to the nature of most riots. There is a similarity in all of them. It begins with an instigator who has an agenda. Riots may appear to be spontaneous outbursts of unified outrage, but when we look at it a little bit closer, it usually reveals there are one or two people behind the scenes stirring up the passions of the crowd. Those who expect a benefit from the riot, they may use uh, inflammatory speech. They may exaggerate in the details and the cooperation of a few colleagues sprinkled about amongst the group make the, scene, make the riot seem spontaneous. In other words here, those who incite riots today use the very same tactics that the scribes and the Pharisees used in the day of Jesus. The same thing that's nothing new. It's the same thing. Many of those in the crowd that day, they had seen Jesus' miracles. They heard him teaching in their own synagogues. They may have even been healed by him. Yet, under the influence of these impassioned political so-called leaders, they quickly turned against him. These are the same people who shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna! Only days before. And now they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! People caught up in the fever of the moment, they don't realize the riots begin with an instigator, someone with whom being used. They have been manipulated into believing they're making a righteous point by p 
pillaging and indiscriminately destroying the property of others. Social pressure is a powerful motivator. And when everyone around us is inflamed with fury, shouting opinions and slogans and demanding change, it's easy to be swept along with the crowd, just as you would in a flooding street. Everything in its way just gets sucked right on down through the, through the water. Rioting is a form of lawlessness, which the Bible condemns. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Right there it tells you. Sin is lawlessness. And the Bible condemns lawlessness just because it's the same as sin. And it condemns sin. I believe we've heard this verse in other episodes too, though. I have said this before in a number of other ones. Even the rioters are seeking to advance a just cause, and they're just going about it in a sinful way. To be lawless is to, is to consider oneself an exception to the law, or to act as though there were no law. The lawless think rules don't apply to them, and they become a law to themselves. That's what happens in a riot. Even normal, law-abiding people can become inflamed with fury and self-righteousness and decide that their cause is worth breaking legal, moral, and ethical laws. They may destroy property. They may uh, stop the or, or hinder stop the transportation in, in the community. They may harm innocent bystanders and tie up the law enforcement personnel who could be spending their time on more worthy pursuits, and taking care of the bad guys. Rioters place themselves and their leaders above the law. And that, my friends, is sin. Period. Anger, especially when motivated by vengeance or spread by self-seeking rabble-rousers, is never a trustworthy guide. Those who allow themselves to be controlled by it may become foolish part participants. Foolish participants in an ungodly riots. That's what the Bible says about riots. That's what's happening within these riots. It's not decided by everybody, hundreds or a thousand of them or however many it is. They don't all just write it on paper and say, we agree with this. They just get sucked into it because they're there to see what's going on. I'll get off that soapbox. A lot of soapboxes here with this topic, I'm sorry to say. But I have some very strong feelings. In 2020, many of us learned about an organization, organization named Antifa. Antifa is a name given to a loosely organized set of activists, mostly from the United States. And they claim to oppose authoritarianism and racism, right-leaning politics. But the word Antifa comes from the German Anti-fascism. I hope that's right. Apologize, but it's not. And it means anti-fascist. Antifa's version of activism is distinguished mostly by a willingness to engage in intimidation, I found. They deny all of the, of the speech. Antifa members believe their tactics are mild in comparison to what they perceive as the threat of conservative political views. 
And while being anti-fascist is noble in theory, yes it is, Antifa's tactics are actually counterproductive and they are inherently oppressive. At best, I've, I've found that their actions represent politically motivated vigilantism. I can't find a scripture where it supports Antifa's approach to politics or culture or answer to anything that they may find offensive or disagree with. The dominant theme, though, in defending Antifa is the claim that fascism takes hold due to insufficient resistance, bottom line. Antifa believes the necessary response to perceived fascism is tangible physical action, including harassment. It condones direct acts of violence against people and property. While self-identified Antifa members frequently denounce violence publicly, the movement is consistently associated with acts of destruction and personal assault. Isn't that interesting? Using these same justifications, though, Antifa routinely engages in intimidation. Yeah, that sounds like something we've heard back in the biblical days, right? Violence and rioting are, of course, intimidating, but Antifa also uses what they call deplatforming. Deplatforming of those with whom they disagree with. I had not heard that word before, but to be honest. Any words, speakers, writers, or events that fall outside of Antifa's ideology, they're censored, canceled, boycotted, otherwise shut down and denied a voice. The deplatforming approach involves disinviting. It involves protesting, blocking. It literally shouting over unwanted expressions to nullify them. Deplatforming literally denies people the ability to express or explain their views. They just overwhelm them. Louder and louder, more noise, 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 just to squelch, that's the word, just to squelch the voice of others. That's what they do. And another tactic commonly associated with them is doxing. D-O-X-I-N-G, D-O-X-X-I-N-G. Again, something I had not heard of. This is deliberate revealing personal information about ideological opponents, their phone number, their home addresses, any other personal details. And it's all just meant to invite further harassment within their private life and, and disrupt their family. And it just increases social pressure to try to conform to Antifa's way of thinking. This actually was happening in my town. I'm sure it happened in many other towns uh, back in 2020 with all the riots that were going on across the country. They found out, actually, they found out one of the people that they so disagreed with that they were headed out to their house one day. And it was all over the news. Businesses shut down around that area, boarded up, practically boarded up, like they might be ready for a hurricane or something. I mean, they were shutting down and everybody was getting off early. It disrupted the whole community. And the fact is that this individual person lived about... Mm, half a mile from where we live. And it was a little bit scary, I gotta admit. I mean, police were out. They're waiting for these transports to come with these people, buses, or however they were gonna get there. And just everybody in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood just really kind of shut down. 
They were saying, don't go out after, uh, uh, don't go out after dinner. Don't be out after dark. I mean, it was really, the, the city was just making this like it was uh, the Taliban coming through town or something. It, it was really, really scary. Antifa's tactics, though, are actually just hypocritical. They're self-defeating. Organizations who might sympathize with their ideology, they've denounced the movement for that very reason. In practice, though, Antifa merely replaces government fascism with mob fascism. Fascist ideology is a combination of unacceptable leadership, regimented adherence to certain ideas. Relying on fear and intimidation. That's all it is. From government facet to mob facet. There's no difference. Just the different people that are trying to run the show. Let me see. I'm trying to look through some other notes here. Make sure I say it properly. Uh, the fact. Let me just continue here. The fact that Antifa movement's effectively anonymous and informal it makes it especially difficult to track down. There's really no single unified group. They're all like individual cells throughout different cities. There's no really one person overseeing them all. It's just a movement uh, that someone takes up, but you never know really who it is. And it's just hard to take care of. But believe it or not, Scripture actually does encourage civic engagement. I didn't say civil unrest. Civil engagement. It includes voting and other political actions. The Christian worldview in no way allows for rioting or predatory attacks or intimidation or anything else associated with Antifa. Beyond the use of immoral tactics, Antifa is strongly associated with ideologies difficult to align with any type of biblical Christian worldview. No matter what they say on the outside, what they do makes them such hypocrites. Believers, yes, we should stand against racism, oppression, but using those kind of messages, they're contradictory to anything in the biblical Christianity culture. I want to say, be careful with what organizations, with whom you agree to be associated with. You should continue to test everything to the knowledge of Scripture and knowing that the truth will always set you free. Don't go by what someone says. Always test it. Now, for the last these last three episodes, the Lord's been sharing with us the difference between restlessness and unrest settings. As I close, I want the Lord to give us some guidance in finding true rest with Him. Okay? True rest with the Lord. In Psalm 95, we're being invited to worship with Him. However, in the second half of this chapter, it gives us warnings about missing this worship time with hardened hearts. Just as our ancestors did when they continually tested God. It says that he, God, he was angry with that generation for 40 years. And many of you know this is that generation out of Egypt that went astray. And then they never got to see the promised land. They never 
get to experience true rest. Verse 11, God says, I declared an oath on my anger. They shall never enter into my rest. Now, this same quote, it's retold a number of other times in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. What keeps us from God's ultimate blessings, which is entering into his rest? It's when our hearts become hardened. We are ungrateful to him. God hadn't given the Israelites plentiful of opportunities for this peace being described, but they missed it because all they did was complain day in and day out, day in and complain, complain. It was all about them. God wants us to enter his rest. But if Jesus has provided our rest through faith, what, why, why do we need to make every effort to enter into that rest? Well, I want to make sure that you don't go down the wrong path here because this doesn't mean we must do good works in order to obtain salvation. It has to do with overcoming spiritual laziness and the doubts that you may come about. In order to enter into ultimate rest with God, you must believe that He has this special relationship planned for you and for you to stop trying to create it on your own. You need to trust in Christ for it. Choose to follow him wholeheartedly because he has already promised it for you. My goodness, it's already there. Hebrews 4.3 And we see this quote again when God said that they shall never enter my rest. I want to finish with verse 6 and 7 out of Hebrews. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter the rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them, and they did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, through this passage. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So I'm asking you as we close, are you hearing his voice today? Lord, thank you for what you've given us over these past couple of two or three episodes, these three episodes now, the, the in-depthness of what it is to overcome being restless, the overcome being an unrest condition and the concerns, the, 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 the warnings about what unrest can do when people don't know you. The unrestlessness, the forms, the lawlessness that is in fact sin as spoken in the scripture you gave us today. Do not let us fall into those traps let us test everything as you said. Test it all to your word and know the truth and the truth will set you free. Folks, test it all. Test everything to God's word and his promises, I promise you, are there for you to take. Blessings to you, your family, and those that you impact. 
be an impact to them, be a light unto them, and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, for God is the one. Amen.